The Heretic's Forfeit, a tale of jealousy, murder and revenge, written and performed by Paul Francis Matthews. Episode 8. The first thought that entered Olivia's mind when she set eyes on Sir Christopher Marlowe's severely glamorous personal assistant Ursula Mandrake, sweeping across the ground floor foyer of the Marlowe Corps HQ, her hand outstretched in greeting, was how much he looked like a member of the all-female backing band in the 1985 video for Robert Palmer's song Addicted to Love. Dr. Belmont, I'm delighted to meet you. I'm Sir Christopher's personal assistant Ursula Mandrake. I'm very pleased to make your acquaintance, Mrs. Mandrake. This is my my friend, William Shakespeare. Hello, Mr. Shakespeare. Good day to you, Mistress, beg pardon, Ms. Mandrake. If you both care to come with me, I'll take you up in the private elevator to the top floor. Sir Christopher is simply dying to meet you. It was the most luxurious lift Olivia had ever been in. It must have cost more to decorate than her entire house. Hanging on the wall was a very beautiful painting of a young girl combing her hair. According to the signature on the bottom right-hand corner, the artist was... Picasso. Excuse me, Miss Mandrake. Yes? Is this painting an actual, original Picasso? Course it fucking is. Before she could stop herself, Olivia guffawed. Ursula looked at her askance. You seem amused. Well, it was very amusing. What was? What you just did with your voice. What I just did with my voice? Yes, you changed it and went all cockney. Miss Belmont, what on earth are you talking about? Oh, nothing. Nothing. I must have imagined it. Yes, you must have. The elevator came to a stop, then the door slid open and everyone got out. Ursula pressed a button on the wall, sending the elevator back down to the ground floor. She gestured towards a door right at the other end of a long corridor. You're going to be meeting Sir Christopher in the boardroom. It's a rare honour. Please follow me. They started walking along the long corridor towards the boardroom. Ursula turned to Olivia and smiled. Sir Christopher has a million and one questions he'd like to ask you. About the sonnet? Yes. Amongst other things. Well, we've got a million and one things we'd like to tell him, haven't we, William? Shakespeare smiled. Olivia squeezed his hand. She then felt something vibrating against the top of her leg. It took her a couple of seconds to realise that it was the mobile phone in her trouser pocket receiving an incoming call. She took the phone out and saw that it was from Toby. Excuse me, Miss Mandrake, but I've got to take this call. Go ahead. We're in no hurry. Everyone stopped. Olivia walked back a few paces to make sure she was out of earshot. Hi, Toby. Olivia, thank God. I've been trying to get hold of you for ages. I thought something must have happened. Is William with you? Uh, yes, he is. I I'm sorry, but I've been incommunicado for a few days. My phone wasn't charged. Can you call back later? I'm kind of busy right now. Olivia, you've got to listen to me. You have to watch your back. Sir Christopher Marlowe is on the lookout for you. Well, actually, Toby... You do know that the word in the street is he had Jerry Mulligan killed? What? Jerry Mulligan's dead? You haven't heard? No. But it's been all over telly and newspapers and everything. I've been a bit preoccupied. His car exploded. What? Yeah, while he was in it. It happened round corner from the Marlowe Corps HQ. 
Listen, if Marlowe can arrange to have someone like Jerry Mulligan killed simply for writing a couple of articles in The Guardian criticising his company and then telling jokes about him on Have I Got News For You, then who knows what else he might be capable of. I'm telling you, Olivia, the man's evil and dangerous. By the way, where are you right now? Nowhere. Look, Toby, I'll talk to you tonight. OK, bye. Olivia! She hung up. Is everything all right? Yes, fine. It was a friend telling me that Jerry Mulligan has died. Oh, it's tragic. He was so talented. I was a huge fan. My friend said his car exploded. Yes, but these things happen. C'est la vie. Shall we? Ursula, Olivia and Shakespeare resumed their procession along the long corridor. Portraits of every Christopher Marlowe from 1564 to the present day lined the walls. And Olivia noticed, as they walked past each painting, that apart from their different clothes, and hairstyles, every Christopher Marlowe looked exactly the same. When Olivia was a little girl, she had a poster of Tutankhamun on her bedroom wall. Archaeology was a lifelong passion, and even though it was only an optical illusion, she was convinced that the Egyptian boy king's eyes would follow her around the room. And now she was witnessing the same phenomenon with the portraits of the various Christopher Marlowe's. But it wasn't just their eyes that were following Olivia and Shakespeare as they got closer and closer towards the door at the far end of the long corridor. The Christopher Marlowe's were also turning their heads. Olivia suddenly had a mental image of Ursula opening the door at the far end of the long corridor and ten generations of Christopher Marlowe's watching as Olivia and Shakespeare stepped into a bottomless void of pitch black nothingness. Who knows what else he might be capable of? Olivia stopped dead in her tracks. Oh my god, I've been such an idiot. Is there something wrong? Yes, I've suddenly remembered something. I have an urgent dentist's appointment. Right now, in fact. Well, in about half an hour from now. How stupid of me to forget. But luckily, my dentist is quite near. So if I hurry, I might make it. I'm afraid we'll have to take a rain check and come back some other time. A dentist's appointment? Yes, William, a dentist's appointment. Shakespeare was rather peeved, as he had been really looking forward to confronting Sir Christopher Marlowe about all the things his conniving, murderous bastard of an ancestor had done. He had prepared a speech and everything, and now they were going to have to postpone the meeting because Olivia had an urgent dentist's appointment. What was a dentist's appointment anyway? For that matter, what was a dentist? Olivia grabbed him by the arm. Come on, William, we have to leave right now. But Sir Christopher is really looking forward to meeting you. Yes, sorry about that, but you know what these dentists can be like. Miss just one appointment and they'll slap you with a big fine or chuck you off their register completely, the bastards. And getting an NHS dentist in London is an absolute bugger. As I said, we'll come back another time. Come on, William. Olivia began dragging Shakespeare towards the elevator, and then the elevator door slid open and Conrad stepped out. One hand was inside his jacket, and Olivia guessed that the big guy wasn't reaching for his handkerchief. And now Ursula grabbed Olivia by the arm. Come, come, Dr. Belmont. You wouldn't want to disappoint Sir Christopher, would you? Olivia didn't think about it. She just did it, which was why it worked so magnificently well. She arched her back and then smacked her forehead into Ursula's with such force that the latter was literally unconscious before she knew what had hit her. Olivia then ran at Conrad and delivered a boot to his balls of such spectacular viciousness that even Shakespeare winced. While Conrad was rolling about in the floor, clutching his violated genitalia, Olivia entered the elevator and removed the Picasso from the wall. Portrait of a young prostitute grooming herself was painted on a wooden panel that some art experts claim is an old breadboard that once belonged to Gertrude Stein. In any event, it was heavy enough to knock Conrad out cold when Olivia whacked it across his skull. She then reached into his inside jacket pocket and took out his gun. Let's go, William. The lift's going down. 
Once inside the elevator, Olivia slumped to the floor and stared with blank incomprehension at Conrad's gun, like it was some kind of weird alien artifact that had just materialised in her hand. Bloody hell, what did I just do? Shakespeare crouched down beside her and put a hand on her shoulder. Are we going to the dentist's now? Christopher Marlowe had been waiting in his lair for Olivia and Shakespeare to be delivered into his clutches by Conrad and Ursula when he'd suddenly heard a commotion in the corridor. Upon investigation, he discovered Ursula and Conrad lying keeled on the floor and Olivia and Shakespeare nowhere to be seen. Ursula was first to regain her senses, but Conrad proved difficult to rouse. Ursula gave Marlowe a quick recap of what had occurred and then phoned security. While she was doing this, Marlowe walked back to the boardroom, located a champagne bucket, filled it with cold water, returned to the corridor with the bucket and then tipped its contents over Conrad's head. The cold water shocked Conrad back into consciousness. My testicles, they ache so much. You're lucky I don't cut them off with a rusty fucking penknife. Ursula, with what appeared to be a hard-boiled egg growing out of her forehead, gave Marlowe a brief update on the state of play. The Glasgow kiss that Olivia had planted on her forehead also seemed to have knocked all the plums out of her mouth. They haven't passed through reception, so my guess is they took the lift all the way down to the basement car park. Olivia and Shakespeare had indeed taken the lift all the way down to the basement car park, but they couldn't find the eggs. It. Olivia saw a car pull up into one of the bays at the far end. A man got out of the car. It was Clive Cheveney. Clive immediately recognised the attractive young woman who was sprinting towards him. It was Dr. Olivia Belmont. Images of the young archaeologist from UCL who had discovered Marlowe's long-lost sonnet had been all over the newspapers and television. As to the young man running alongside her, Clive didn't know him from Adam. You're Dr. Olivia Belmont. I recognise your face. I must say, I I'm absolutely thrilled to meet you. My name's Clive Cheveney. Hello, Clive Cheveney. Olivia raised her gun and pointed it at Clive. Give me your car keys, Clive. Immediately. Righty-ho. Hang on, I suddenly remembered something. I never passed my test. Uh, can you drive a car, William? Uh, what am I saying? What am I saying? Of course you can't drive a car. I'm sorry, Clive, and I know this is a little bit cheeky, but do you mind giving us a lift? Russell and Conrad had taken the stairs, and at that very moment they crashed through a set of double doors about a hundred feet away from where Olivia, Shakespeare and Clive were standing. Ursula and Conrad were both armed. Conrad raised his weapon and then fired a bullet which whizzed by Clive's right temple. When it came to neutralising Olivia and Shakespeare, the safety and well-being of Marlowe Corps' employees was obviously not of paramount concern. Olivia, Clive and Shakespeare jumped into the car. It then performed a screeching reverse out of the parking bay and sped off. <laughs> Look, Clive, I know what you must be thinking, but we're not violent people. Well, you do have a gun pointed at me. Oh, yes, sorry. William, can you put the gun in your pocket, please? It occurred to Olivia that perhaps it would be prudent for her and Shakespeare to disguise themselves somehow. She rummaged in her handbag and found a pink beanie and a pair of dark glasses. She put the glasses on and gave Shakespeare the hat. While she was preoccupied with all this, Clive surreptitiously activated his steering wheel Bluetooth. Meanwhile, back at the underground car park, Ursula was talking to Marlowe on her mobile, informing him that Olivia and Shakespeare had made their getaway in Clive Cheveney's car. Just then, Ursula's mobile alerted her to an incoming call. It was Clive Cheveney. She put Clive on speakerphone. It would be terribly helpful, Miss Belmont, if you could tell me exactly where you would like me to give you a lift to. Oh, I don't know, Clive. Let me think. Um... Olivia noticed on the side of a bus an advertisement for a certain popular tourist attraction. Take us to the Tower of London. Righty-ho, the Tower of London it is.
The thing that Ursula loved most about Marlowe, and in her own strange way she really did love him, was that for such a strikingly attractive man he rarely, if ever, looked in a mirror. If anything, he seemed to actively avoid them. She remarked on this one morning while she was lying in bed watching him getting dressed. Why do you never look in the mirror, Kit? I look in mirrors all the time. You don't. And it's the thing I love most about you, because it shows that you aren't vain. No, you're wrong there. I'm extremely vain. Has it ever occurred to you, Ursula, my little Park Lane pearly queen, that the reason I never look in mirrors is because I have no reflection? Like a vampire? Yes, like a vampire. Well, that would explain a lot. But Marlowe was looking in the mirror now. After he'd finished talking to Ursula on the phone, he'd gone to the bathroom to change the plaster on his cut hand. The band-aids were in the drawer directly below the mirror so he could hardly miss it. He stared at his smoothly handsome face for a long time, tracing the outline of it with his finger. When Shakespeare had looked in the mirror at Olivia's flat, he saw a stranger. When Marlowe looked in this mirror, or indeed any mirror, he saw his soul. He may not have been a vampire, he did have a reflection, but he was definitely some kind of monster. The Tower of London and its immediate surroundings were, as usual, jam-packed full of foreign tourists, which Olivia was heartened to see. There is safety in numbers. She also spotted a police constable giving directions to a group of young backpackers. This gave her an idea. Okay, William, this is what we're going to do. First, we're going to approach that friendly London Bobby over there and tell him that someone has just tried to kill us. He's then going to get on his radio and arrange to have us taken to a police station. Scotland Yard would be be ideal, and when we get to Scotland Yard we're going to tell some senior CID detectives about every single thing that's happened to us, starting right from the very beginning. Shakespeare nodded his head. This was a very good plan, even though he didn't understand precisely all of its details. Then he took the gun from his pocket. But what shall we do about this? Oh my god, that man has a gun! It was an elderly American woman in a wheelchair who screamed this at the very top of her voice. Her name was Mrs. Harriet Rasmussen. She was one of a group of 185 paraplegics from Lincoln, Nebraska, enjoying a fortnight's package tour holiday in the UK. The official inquiry into what the tabloids would christen the terror at the tower concluded that Mrs. Rasmussen screaming, Oh my God, that man has a gun, was probably the catalyst for the gunman firing his weapon. Luckily, no one was harmed, as the gun in Shakespeare's hand was pointing upwards when the old lady made him jump out of his skin and inadvertently fire off a bullet. But accident or not, the result was still total pandemonium. Upon hearing the gunshot, everyone started running around like their hair was on fire. The psychology of crowds being what it is, each person as if linked telepathically to a single collective hive mind was now convinced that instead of it being a lone nutter and a pink beanie firing a random shot from a single handgun, they were under attack from an entire battalion of militant ISIS-inspired jihadists wielding AK-47s and quite possibly bazookas. While all around in mass hysteria ensued, Shakespeare himself, deafened by the gunshot, was the eye of the storm. He remained rooted to the spot, the gun in his hand still pointing in the air, and only 
his face an expression of supine bewilderment that made him look uncannily like Stan Laurel. In no time at all, the news of a crazed gunman on the rampage at the Tower of London was rapidly disseminated to all points, and soon a frenzied horde of screaming sightseers stampeding from the tower itself was duly sucked into the vortex of mayhem outside. Olivia, on seeing the friendly London Bobby now frantically radioing for armed backup, embarked on the exact same course of action that earlier in the day had proved so fortuitous. She acted without thinking. She grabbed Shakespeare and then the pair of them ran towards the place that everyone else was running out of. In the event of a terror attack in the vicinity of a public building in the UK, the protocol is for said building to be immediately placed into a state of lockdown, with everybody inside the building instructed for their own safety to remain where they are. This did not occur with the terror at the tower. Straight after the gun was fired and the alarm was raised, so many of the tower's staff rushed outside to help evacuate the 185 Nebraskan paraplegics in danger of being knocked out of their wheelchairs and trampled to death, that the small amount of staff that were left inside were unable to stem the tide of terror stricken humanity surging towards the exits. As a consequence, when Olivia and Shakespeare arrived on the scene, they discovered that the Tower of London was completely deserted. Incidentally, the Tower of London is a misnomer. It is actually a complex of 20 towers, with the iconic White Tower at its centre. Olivia and Shakespeare stopped for a breather when they got to Tower Green, the charming little spot where two of Henry VIII's wives were decapitated. Olivia now had time to think, and the thought that occurred to her straight off was how damned lucky they were not to have been followed. She took a few more moments to gather a few more thoughts and then said, Okay, William, this is what we're going to do now. And that was as far as Olivia got before Shakespeare rugby tackled her to the ground. He had glimpsed out of the corner of his eye Ursula and Conrad, their guns raised, creeping towards them from the direction of the bloody tower. If he hadn't seen them the split second before they fired... <laughs> Shakespeare and Olivia would almost certainly have been killed. Shakespeare raised his gun and pulled the trigger, forcing Ursula and Conrad to sprint for cover behind a tree. He turned to Olivia. Run, Olivia! What about you? I shall follow presently, but I prithee, Olivia, stay not upon my pleasure, but go! Now, go! Olivia got to her feet and then legged it towards the chapel royal of St. Peter ad Vincula. While Shakespeare and Conrad exchanged gunfire, Ursula broke away and ran off in a wide arc to Shakespeare's right, diving for cover behind the execution site memorial and thus blocking Shakespeare's route to the chapel. Shakespeare was now caught between two lines of fire. The only option open to him was to turn tail and make for the White Tower. He put his head down and set off in a headlong zigzagging dash towards the tower, bullets whizzing past his hunched shoulders and ricocheting off the Norman Citadel's 11th century stonework. Despite the best efforts of Ursula and Conrad, he made it. Once Shakespeare had disappeared inside the building, Ursula ordered Conrad to go after him. She then reloaded her gun and walked towards the Chapel Royal. Ursula Mandrake had a score to settle with Olivia Belmont. Conrad pursued Shakespeare through the White Tower's halls and passageways and up and down its spiral staircases, trading gunfire all the while. <laughs> Funnily enough, this was Shakespeare's first visit to the Tower of London. It was a pity that he didn't have the time as he ducked behind the exhibits dodging bullets <coughs> to admire the many historical artefacts on display. Perhaps he would come back another day when somebody wasn't trying to kill him. <coughs>
Meanwhile, over at the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula, Olivia was standing by the main door, armed with a giant candlestick she'd swiped from the altar. If someone was coming to kill her, she was ready for them. But what was keeping them? She'd been standing behind the chapel door with the candlestick, like a murder suspect from Cluedo, for more than ten minutes. The tension was becoming unbearable. She was just about to give up and take her chances outside when she heard... She turned and saw Ursula standing no more than 15 feet away, the gun in her hand pointing straight at her. How had she got there without Olivia seeing? From her vantage point by the door, she had a clear view of the whole church. Olivia saw that Ursula was standing between the front two rows of seats, and then she realised immediately what Ursula had done. The back door was out of sight in the vestry. She had come in that way and then slithered underneath the pews all the way to the front, like some kind of severely glamorous adder. Conda. Ursula stepped out into the aisle. Olivia noticed that she was wearing a pair of Manolo Blanick kitten heel slingbacks. <laughs> Fancy wearing them to a gunfight. And she'd been running in them. On grass. It's queer the things you think about right at the end. Shakespeare and Conrad's travelling gunfight had by now reached the gallery housing the popular visitor attraction, the Line of Kings. Conrad fired, forcing Shakespeare to dive for cover behind a life-sized carved wooden horse. The horse had a life-sized model of a medieval knight on its back, and both the knight and the horse were in full battle armour, which was something Shakespeare wished he was also wearing because his gun was down to its last bullet, and if he didn't make it count, he was soon going to be utterly defenceless. Shakespeare took a deep breath, then jumped out from behind the horse, aimed his gun at Conrad, pulled the trigger, and missed. Instead of hitting Conrad, Shakespeare's last bullet completely shattered a glass-fronted display case containing Hanoverian and Windsor swords belonging to eight British monarchs from George I through to George VI. Shakespeare threw his empty gun at Conrad, just like they always do in the movies, and ironically, throwing the gun proved to be a great deal more effective than firing it. The butt of the Glock caught Conrad in the face, just below the right eye socket. He let out a sharp yelp of pain Scheiser! and reeled backwards. Shakespeare rushed forward and then, reaching into the cabinet, grabbed Edward II's cavalry sabre. Conrad, now half-blind, aimed his gun, but with a lightning-quick slash of the sabre across his forearm, Shakespeare caused him to drop his weapon, which he then kicked across the room. It may have been more than four hundred years since Shakespeare had last held a sword, but the blade still turned easily in his hand. For a period in the late 1580s, he had served as a sergeant in the Earl of Leicester's regiment and had fought in the Low Countries, so he knew how to kill. But even though Conrad was at his mercy, Shakespeare was a gentleman, and gentlemen do not cold-bloodedly run through an unarmed foe. There must be, at the very least, the semblance of a fair fight. He selected from the remaining seven royal weapons in the cabinet George II's hilted broadsword. He tossed it to Conrad, in whose clumsy great mitts the sturdy blade looked like a toothpick. Shakespeare adopted the en garde position, but Conrad, ignoring the courtesies, simply charged at his chivalrous adversary, flailing the broadsword wildly in the air. Shakespeare deftly pirouetted to his right, like a matador performing a nimble Molinetti, whacking Conrad's backside with the flat edge of his sabre as he lumbered past. The big chump lost his balance and went sprawling across the floor. He scrambled to his feet and charged once again. Shakespeare executed a perfect semicircular parry, simultaneously trapping his opponent's sword and knocking it from his grip. Not being a cruel man, Shakespeare decided to dispatch his graceless foe quickly, with a single clean thrust through the heart. He also needed to get a move on and find out what had happened to Olivia. But just as he was about to deliver the coup de grace... Yeah, what are you two playing at? Those ain't toys, you know, they're valuable antiques. 
put him down! Shakespeare and Conrad turned and saw marching towards them an 82-year-old cockney beefeater with a rolled-up copy of the racing post under his arm. For the last half hour, he had been sitting on the commode in the staff toilet with his hearing aid turned off, studying form. Conrad took sneaky advantage of this momentary distraction to pick the broadsword up off the floor and rampage at full tilt towards Shakespeare. The old beefeater shouted a warning. Oi, mate, look out! Shakespeare threw himself to his left. Conrad missed Shakespeare, but his momentum propelled him forward with the result that instead of plunging Edward II's hilted broadsword into Shakespeare's back, he rammed it into the 82-year-old Cockney beefeater's stomach. Conrad let go of the sword and stepped back. The old man's knees gave way. Shakespeare rushed forward to catch him. Just then, several eight-inch-long metal canisters spewing grey smoke from both ends came flying through the gallery's main entrance and rolled across the floor. Shakespeare may not have known what these mysterious metal canisters were or who had thrown them into the room, but Conrad did. He also knew that the thick grey smoke was tear gas. He took a handkerchief from his pocket, put it over his nose and mouth and then ran to the opposite end of the room. Shakespeare, his eyes burning with scalding hot tears, held the old man in his arms. The old man tried to pull the sword from his belly, but Shakespeare, who knew that to do so would cause an even more rapid loss of blood, held it in place. A dozen members of the Metropolitan Police Force's elite counter-terror firearms unit came pouring in through the main entrance. This was Conrad's cue to put his elbow through the nearest window and make good his escape. A dozen semi-automatic carbines were now pointed at Shakespeare. Let go of the weapon! Shakespeare took his hands off the weapon. Put your hands in the air! Shakespeare put his hands up in the air. The old man pulled the sword from his stomach. Blood gouted from the gaping wound in a thick black-red torrent. Holy Mary, Mother of God! He has killed me! And with that, the 82-year-old Cockney Beefeater closed his eyes and died. The end of episode 8 of The Heretic's Forfeit.